Welcome back to Microdigressions. This is Spencer Case, and I just want to remind you, listeners, that the music that you should be hearing fading out right now, if I've done the editing correctly, is by Jeremy Money, last name M-O-H-N-E-Y. You can find him on Bandcamp, very talented. He's a friend of mine. He's been kind enough to allow me to use his music for the intros and outros, and so I'd appreciate it if you repaid him by downloading some of it for not very much money. My guest today is my friend Craig White. Craig is the author of Iraq, The Moral Reckoning. He has a PhD in political science, specializing in just war ethics, and he's also had a diplomatic career in the U.S. State Department. Why don't you say a little bit about that, Craig? (laughs) <laughs> that was 20 years. And I came in as kind of a generalist, but with somebody who already had some Middle East knowledge. The State Department sent me to Yemen. And toward the end of my tour, a civil war was developing and I was predicting it to Washington, but my cables were getting watered down by the embassy. <laughs> and that kind of injected some cynicism that stayed with me through my State Department career. I, I got evacuated out of war zones three times overall. I did most of my diplomatic career in Africa and the Middle East. So I did some time in Oman, Kenya. I did one tour in Iceland, Mauritius at the end, Zaire, Democratic Republic of the Congo, as it was falling to pieces. And I also did two years resettling African refugees from the State Department side, sitting in Washington, working on those issues. So it was a lot of fun. It was fascinating, pretty adventurous, sometimes pretty dangerous, but it was good. I'm grateful. And thank you for having me on this podcast, by the way. I'm grateful for that. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. I'm wondering if your experiences in your career in the State Department informed the way you think about war and and moral philosophy and the sort of things that you work on now. Well, I think the experience did that very much. Before State Department, though, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Oman, and I was sent to a pretty small town where very few people spoke English in the late 70s. And I felt like that was a really unusual window into another culture that I saw a lot of people who were off guard, didn't know what they ought to say to a Westerner, were working in their own language. And they would say things that, you know, I didn't think uh, a Western educated person in the capital would say to a diplomat. So I felt like that was an entree into kind of the good and the bad of Arab Islamic culture, if I can say mine has some good and some bad too, but a a realistic look to say, okay, there's real values that they share sometimes with us. There's others that we don't share. They really, really think differently. And I think that's a problem for a lot of Americans who haven't lived in another culture is to really absorb the fact that people value different things deep down. So yeah, I think it affected the ethics very much because your view of reality is kind of a foundation to to your ethical theories in one way. I could talk about that for a long time. But I mean, part of my view of ethics was like, I think with this rather wide background in Africa and the Middle East, and then I started reading about Thomas Aquinas's just war theory, and it seemed like this balanced, wide-ranging theory that took into account intention and what you were actually doing and the rules in force and practical possibilities. 
I, I, I think that theory sank in partly because I had the experience that I had and trying to figure out how other societies worked that were very different from mine. I think that was a very useful, useful thing. I have, by the way, heard that Oman is an extremely underrated travel destination. Yeah, no, it, it has spectacular natural beauty. And then there's a kind of openness to outsiders in Oman that not all the countries around it share, a uh, kind of warmth. When I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and even later, there were times when you could not walk down the street as a stranger in a town without being invited in. And then there's this spectacular natural beauty. There's these rugged mountains that rise to about 10,000 feet. There's other rugged mountains near the Indian Ocean on the south. There's a traditional architecture that's really beautiful. There's fabulous cooking. And there are just a whole lot of things that make it one of the very positive places I've ever lived. Very hospitable. I love the country. I really do. All right. So to jump into it, I initially wanted to have you on to talk about Ukraine, given your background, but we decided to pass that one up for now and go on to some other things we were talking about. And we had a conversation about hypocrisy and the significance of it. I thought maybe we should pick it up from there. Good. Okay. So I, I looked that up and I'm might want to revise my vocabulary a little bit. I thought about it. And because when I, I thought, well, I should look up Aquinas on hypocrisy. I really love Aquinas and he's got this wide ranging approach to everything. And I mean, he talks about hypocrisy in the sense of pretending to be something you're not. And uh, that's related to the root of it, which is this Greek word for somebody playing a part on stage is, is a hypocrite. But what we were talking about really was kind of like, criticizing some other country when you won't criticize yours for doing something very similar, or you haven't criticized yours. What I'm really talking about is not so much hypocrisy as a, a judgment that's, that's partial or one-sided or biased. So it's not exactly the same as hypocrisy is like, I'm pretending to be something. It's more like the French proverb, de poids, de mesures, you know, two weights, two sets of measurements. You know, I'm applying different standards to different sides. So I do think if you're going to set yourself up as a commenter, especially if you're a philosopher, have some pretensions in that area, then although you should have a greater love, I think, for your own family and your own country than for all mankind, because in practice, you can't begin to love all mankind unless you love your own country and so forth. But I think... As you mature, you need to become as honest as possible about the flaws of your own place, about the flaws of your own leaders. And if you apply a standard to others and you don't apply it to your own side, the harsh way to say this is you're more of a flack than a philosopher, especially if you do it on a regular basis. If you do it once, it, it's a failing, you know, it's... It, bad piece of judgment. But I, I feel like there are some people who make a career out of it, or it's part of their career as commenters. They apply these spectacular high standards to other countries whenever they need to. And when it comes to their own country, they're, they're like, uh, oh, well, there's special circumstances or special reasons. And it, it, to me, it, it kind of uh, takes away your credibility as a philosopher and a moral commenter. 
So I guess hypocrisy is said in many ways. There are different things that people mean by it. One meaning of it is what Brandon Warmke and Justin Tosi call grandstanding, where you are using moral language as a way to promote yourself and not as a way to get at what's true. So that's, I think, one thing people mean by hypocrisy. But often it seems to mean something really thin, which is just that you are appealing to a standard that you yourself don't perfectly live up to or your side doesn't perfectly live up to or or something like that. And you're invoking it against some other person or some other people. I bristle at that because it seems like functionally what that does, since no one is perfect, no group of people is perfect, no one lives up to their standards, is it neutralizes any attempt to appeal to any kind of moral standards. And it it changes the dialectic into something that is ad hominem, like, well, who are you to say it? And what I want to say, is what I'm saying true? If it's true, then anyone has standing to say it. So I'm suspicious of the way charges of hypocrisy are rhetorically deployed. I'm also not sure that there's anything uniquely bad about hypocrisy. So I think if I'm calling you out for a standard that I myself don't live up to, and and not just slightly, but dramatically, it seems to me that the badness of what I'm doing consists in my failure to live up to the standard, provided that it is actually a good standard. It's not the talking the talk and not walking the walk that is bad. It's simply the not walking the walk. It's that in which the badness consists, I would say. And the inconsistent standards thing, I, I don't know if it, that adds any further badness to it. What do you think? Well, I mean, I, I do think it adds, it adds some badness. I mean, because I would call it an offense against justice. I would call it a kind of poison. I, I take your point immediately that nobody's perfect. And I think that's really important. So if somebody wants to say, oh, well, you know, we did this a hundred years ago, or we have this set of problems, therefore, how can an American criticize some other country? I think there's something a bit absurd about that. So I'll I'll agree with you that it can be used to simply kill dialogue. But I do think that you acquire a voice and you acquire a kind of standing by placing yourself under a standard that's a shared standard. And If you're not doing that, you're violating something fundamental. Scruton builds in a whole idea of ethics from this I-thou relationship and this ability to call each other to account. And if we're calling each other to account, it only works if I admit that I am accountable in the same way. I mean, it only works interpersonally. If I want to tell my friend or my wife or or my father, like, hey, you know, you didn't do this. If I consistently violate that very same thing, I'm just creating uh, confusion. I'm not credibly appealing to a standard. Because if I'm not sitting under the standard, under the same umbrella sort of with you, then I'm polluting the moral atmosphere in a sense. I'm just using it instrumentally instead of appealing to it as something really higher than both of us. If I mean it's really higher than both of us, then I can have failings, but... I will be willing to say, okay, if you accuse me of X, I have to look at that. I have to consider it. 
I won't just whitewash what I did. I'll, you know, I'll honestly look at the way you frame it and, you know, I'll, I'll try to deal with that. But if I can brush it off and say, oh, that's whataboutism or something, then I think I might be dodging a very serious moral responsibility. The language is kind of like the biblical language of hypocrisy is kind of evocative. Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. It stinks, right? It's, it's pretty on the outside, but there's a stench coming up from beneath. And I think that's the idea that if you're instrumentalizing morality, you, you're perverting it in a serious way. You know, the whiteness symbolizes something and it has a, a fixed meaning and it doesn't symbolize that in you, you know, that you're outwardly acting in a moral way, but it doesn't actually symbolize any genuine commitment to principle. You're undermining a society's attempt to coordinate in important ways. There's a common currency that's being debased here. In yeah, that. something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think as you were speaking, I thought of part of the odiousness, I think, of like Stalin's regime was this appeal to the welfare of people and, you know, this heaven on earth that was going to be built and this wonderful society. It was like if they had just admitted that they were, you know, viciously seeking power, it wouldn't have had this hideousness. But to be told how wonderful somebody is while they're abusing you, that, that's kind of the essence of hypocrisy. I have this reaction, which is, suppose two people are both wife beaters. We'll just give them the name Smith and Jones or whatever. And Smith is a wife beater. And then he sees Jones beating his wife. And he's like, I really should stop that. This seems bad. And then he's like, ah, but then I'd be a hypocrite. So, so should he not? It seems like, <laughs> it seems like well, it's, it's better for him to intervene, right? Yeah, but I would say at the least, the, the sort of minimal requirement for intervention is an understanding of what he's done and a resolve to change. I mean, I believe in repentance and forgiveness and that the past is not some eternal weight on you morally, necessarily. You, the change is possible. But if you want to intervene while maintaining your, your own habit and not showing any awareness that you are doing the same thing, then there's something bizarre and grotesque about it. Maybe it becomes, instead of an appeal to morality, instead of a moral act, I think it becomes just an exercise of power. And that's what a lot of philosophers accuse moral standards of being is an, a mere appeal to power. Well, you shouldn't give cover to the Foucaults of the world by turning morality into a cloak for the exercise of power. But so I'm imagining a case where the person who wants to intervene, who is just as guilty himself, his mind is thoroughly encased in cognitive dissonance. Okay. He's, he's thoroughly convinced that, oh, it's different than when I do it because such and such reason. And it's just a, a rationalization, post hoc confabulation, you know, what have you. So Given the case that he's like that, given the case that he's not going to recognize his own wickedness as he should, it still seems to me that what he ought to do, given that unfortunate fact about him, is intervene when somebody else is doing the bad thing. You make me think of the most dramatic story in the Old Testament, which is, you know, David's adultery with the wife of one of his officers. And then he has the officer brought home on leave. 
the army's out campaigning. He's home in the capital city, he's screwing around. And he, well, he's not screwing around. This is a one-off thing, but it's really serious because first he tries to cover it up by having the guy come home so that he can sleep with his wife. So that if there's a child, he'll think it's his. That's bad enough. But then the guy won't go home. He's like, nope, the army's on duty. So he sleeps at the door of the palace. So David sends a message to his trusted henchman out in the field and says, when Uriah gets back, lead him into the hottest part of the battle and abandon him and let him be killed. So the prophet Nathan goes to him and tells him a story about a rich man with a hundred sheep who goes and has a guest come and he seizes his poor neighbor's one sheep to feast on. And David's irate. He's really angry. I think of this story because it kind of illustrates your point. David still has the moral emotion toward the outside. And that's a good thing, right? It shows his conscience is not dead. And then the prophet famously, famously says, you are the man, O king. You did this. You had plenty of sheep. You had all these wives and you chose to, to do this horrible thing. So yeah, in one sense, the desire to intervene is a healthy sign. It's a sign that the conscience isn't completely dead. It's sort of an imperfect, healthy thing. I mean, I would say, let me, let me put, let me take it to a kind of, uh, I really think, I, I don't want to say much about Ukraine because as I told you before, I think when emotions are really, really high, I'd say there's two possibilities. One is I'll just reinforce people's ideas about it. And then that adds nothing. And if I tell them Russia's invasion is unjust and then go on to say anything else, they may get so mad at me that, that they don't want to listen to anything else I say. I feel it's a moment of high passion. But on a, in a general way, this thing keeps happening, I think, in, in the U.S. I hear the U.S. has invaded sovereign nations quite a few times over the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War, right? We've gone in and bombed or invaded sovereign nations. And so when I hear a commentator say about whoever the latest aggressor is, he invaded a sovereign nation. I, it's hard to take seriously. It's like, look, you, you've been a commentator for 20 years or something. You have had plenty of opportunities to notice. It's, it's uh, the words of Jesus, take the log out of your own eye before you take the moat out of your neighbor's eye. Take the two by four out of your eye before you take the log out of your neighbor's. When you want to be a commenter, you set yourself up as a kind of a judge or a sage. And so if you want to be taken seriously by morally serious people, you have to at least acknowledge what you or your side has done that you've been ignoring and say, yeah, I should have said more. The, something minimal. I can't get away from that. I feel like there's nothing sort of more ridiculous than the person with the log in his eye trying to take the moat out of his friends. It's true, though. There is something about hypocrisy that really stirs our moral emotions, like almost more than anything else. What do you think accounts for the severity of our reaction to this particular vice? I think it's mostly that we're all guilty of it to some extent, and deep down we know it. We all become hypocrites because deep down there is a sense of right and wrong that on the one hand, we're constantly tempted to cheat in bigger little ways. Most of us cheat 
to some extent in some ways. And there's some sense of that deep down. So what, and we always hate in others the thing that we dislike in ourselves that we don't want to think about. Yeah, it's projection or something. I, I feel like it's like, yeah, we all have this moral sense and we all are hypocrites to some extent. And when we see it in somebody else, it just drives us crazy. It's easier to take somebody who's, who just proclaims that they're a complete cynic and a disgusting person. That's like, well, okay, that is disgusting, but at least you're not trying to make yourself better than me, you know? I think this is not a good turn of mind. People have it, but I don't think it's good. I've heard some of Trump's fans say this, that at least he doesn't pretend to be good. And I just think, is that really such a good thing? Right? Like No. No. <laughs> no. I agree with the, you. I mean, good, he's a that, good, honest yeah, yeah. liar. <laughs> we stole it fair and square. Yeah, no, I think that is an error in the other direction in Aristotelian terms. Yeah. You should be sensitive to hypocrisy, but if you say, well, at least he's not a hypocrite, he's just a murderer, he's just a rapist. No, you said nothing good whatsoever uh, about the person. Be nice to graph it. They're down here as a murderer, and maybe they drop a little further if they're also a hypocrite. I think they would rise a little bit because, as you said earlier, it's better to be in a state of cognitive dissonance than to be consistently through and through wicked, right? Yeah, that might be true. I haven't thought it through that well, but I think the the sense of a stench in your nostrils that is special to hypocrisy makes me wonder about that. It seems to be a specially nasty thing for others to deal with. What would the Delphic Oracle says, know thyself, which contrary to Descartes, we know is actually quite difficult. Knowing who you really are is tough. And if you don't bother to work on it, or if you fool yourself <laughs> by flattering yourself all the time, it's bad enough to flatter dictators and, and powerful people and be a toady. But to flatter yourself is unbelievably stupid. It's like telling yourself you're not cheating on your diet or your exercise plan. It's like doubly, doubly dumb. What I'm now thinking is perhaps the issue is not that it's inherently bad to be a hypocrite because it's better to be in a state of, co of cognitive dissonance than to be completely evil. But maybe the issue is it's a serious impediment to improvement, that if you cannot apply the moral judgment that you rightly apply to others, to yourself, you just can't improve, right? You're just stuck where you're at. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think of it. I think another thing that it strikes me is that often hypocrites have developed funny, well, to some extent, we're all liable to this, but they've developed funny ways of responding to criticism that guards their hypocrisy. So they develop this little mental fortress around their hypocrisy that compounds the issue. It's a real problem. We are extremely good at confabulating differences between cases and no yes. two things are exactly the same. So... In any particular case where, oh, well, the U.S. did something similar, I've said stuff like this too, I'd say, well, there's this difference and there's this difference. And especially in geopolitics, it's really hard to, to come up with counterfactuals that hold everything equal. And so it's always very easy to come up with an explanation 
for what the the relevant difference is supposed to be. And this is a very general problem. It's never going to be the case that two cases are exactly identical. And we're extremely good at finding ways to make our position consistent, even though they're probably post hoc rationalizations and we don't realize it. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. And this is what ancient wisdom always says, your emotions get wrapped up in it. You are likely to favor one set of reasons for yourself and your friends and your side and another set of reasons for the other. In a sense, this is why justice as the sense of being willing to give each person his due or her due is a really high achievement. The Greeks had one guy known as Aristides the Just. (laughs) It's like not everybody is known as the just. It's a fairly rare thing to be able to do it well. And there's, there's ways to do it badly. I mean, there's ways to constantly attack your own side in a sort of disloyal way to exaggerate the badness of your own family. So there's a lot of ways to go wrong on this one. Yeah. I wanted to go back to your David example and start talking about intention because I think it's a okay. a really good case for that. That's an interesting, that's a segue I wasn't expecting, but I do mention it in my opening chapter. Yeah, go ahead. I had this thought about the King David example because it seems like this is a case where intention really matters. So he wants Bathsheba to be his wife, but she's married to this guy and he arranges for him to be on the the front line of the battle so that he will get killed so that he can have her as his own. I mean, I'm skipping over some details here, but that's the long and short of it. I always wondered whether this is a case where you could bring the intend for C distinction to bear. What if we imagine a version of this case in which he put this guy in the front lines for some other reason, foreseeing the likelihood that he was going to die (laughs) and foreseeing the silver lining that he would then be able to marry this hottie. We would evaluate him differently if that were actually his mental state, although We would suspect there might be some self-deception going on if that was his explicit reasoning. But supposing there wasn't, it seems like we would evaluate him differently. So maybe this illustrates the significance of intention. Yeah, I would need a kind of story about him having special skills that the army needed to call on he's really good in hand-to-hand combat or he's done some of these champion against champion duels and done really well and so the army would really be well served by putting him into this very dangerous situation something like that but i guess elizabeth anscombe says when you want to know somebody's intention a lot of times you can see it somebody's sitting in a chair reading a book you can say, well, they intend to read that book or they're standing at the stove making tea. You go, hey, they're intending to make tea. But other times it's rather complicated. And she says, well, if you can get an honest answer to the question, why are you doing it? There's usually the main reason. This is why. 
it seems like if, if the country was in some kind of danger and Uriah was the man for this special mission, then maybe David would say, hey, look, we really have to have Uriah in on this mission, this commando raid. He's got the interpretive skills and the hand-to-hand combat skills. This is the guy. If that really were the reason, I think that would change the act. We would realize that he wasn't as wicked as he was in the actual story. In the actual story, like, look, Uriah is one of his officers. He owes him loyalty. There's no special purpose. There's no special reason. He really knows he wants him to get killed. He wants it to look like an accident. So it's crystal clear that it's a bad intention. And, uh, and that, by the way, if I can segue, <laughs> I'll just throw this in now. That is an essential feature of the story, it seems. And that's part of what I set up the, in the book. I say, look, there's this modern idea that we can analyze acts without reference to intentions and get a moral evaluation. And then we can analyze the intentions of the agent separately. And we can talk about whether they're praiseworthy or blameworthy. And those are two different things. They're separate. But the reason Nathan condemns the king is not his bad character. It's his bad act, which is shown by his bad intention in the act. I use that as one of the examples. I say there's this new objective view. I call it the objective approach. And there's this very old view that's in the law. I say it's in common perceptions. If we hear about a hate crime, the nation is shocked if it's clearly a hate crime. If we hear about something that's clearly an accident with a very similar outcome, then we feel grief and horror, but we're not, we're not stirred in the same way. There's a very different moral reaction to those two things. So that's one of the thing, ways I used to set it up. I say, look, philosophy, law, literature, old stories, moral perceptions of normal people all are arrayed on the side of this ancient view that really was overwhelmingly common until extremely recently. And then we have this very new view that's in the academy largely, and it's having an influence in law, legal theory, and some other places, but it doesn't seem to have swept the field. And that's how I set up the puzzle. Was the ancient view, was the older view really overcome logically? Was it shown to be inadequate? Or not, (laughs) because sometimes a new view is just more fashionable and it's appealing for some reason. People adopt it without it being better. So I know you've got a paper out already on Judith Jarvis Thompson, who takes this objective view of actions. Why don't you say a little bit about that criticism? Maybe I like the title I was able to come up with. It was uh, against the permissibility of attempted wife poisoning. But I ought to mention the case really quickly. There's Alfred. And this is one of these thought experiments. We can talk about this later. That's really, really out there in terms of probability. It's unbelievably unlikely. Alfred wants to kill his wife, who happens to be ailing. But the stuff that he happens to have is not just harmless. It's the cure for his wife's illness. So Thompson asks... Should he give her the stuff? And she says, well, how can his bad intention make it right for him not to give her the stuff? Of course he should give her the stuff. So I started thinking about this and got beyond my outrage at the unlikeliness of the story because you kind of wonder, it's like a cosmic sting operation from God. Like how on earth did 
he get not the poison, but the cure. He went to his local poison dealer and the guy had mixed in some medicine, which happened to be the exact precise medicine that his wife needed. It's kind of strange. But I started thinking about it and working through it. And I came up with some works from some legal theories. And I realized I had a parallel case where somebody has a sort of objective claim of self-defense, but what they're doing from their internal subjective standpoint is attempted murder. And then as I looked at Alfred, I said, wait, Thompson is saying Alfred should commit attempted murder because there's a good outcome. And then I started looking more closely at Aquinas and Aquinas says there's a number of factors in judging an act. The heart of it is really the intention, but there's also circumstances. There's the actual physical thing that gets done and you have to get all of these right to have a good act. So from Aquinas' standpoint, we could say, well, although there's an accidental circumstance that unknown to him, he's going to cure his wife. What he's trying to do is kill his wife. And that's a really evil thing to do. So it, it's a mixed bag and permissible seemed like really impoverished vocabulary for me. Like, oh, well, the outcome works. So I published that and that was fun and it helped me think about it. As I've thought about it some more, I started to say, well, you know, the outcome works for Alfred, but what about a physician who performs uh, a surgery on somebody who's sick and this surgery 99 times out of a hundred cures the patient, but once out of a hundred more or less it kills the patient. Then I would say, well, now in that one case, we've got the outcome. And according to the rule Thompson firmly announces, which is that intention is irrelevant to permissibility. Well, intention is irrelevant. The doctor had a good intention of saving the patient, but that's irrelevant. The patient's dead. He killed the patient. So therefore that's an impermissible act. And you, you can multiply stories like that. A professor gives a student a crappy grade because the student really didn't do the work and refused and was appealed to and still refused and finally gets an F. And then the student goes out and commits suicide. You can say, well, I don't care about your intention. The outcome, <laughs> you know, the outcome here, that's what Alfred is judged on, the outcome only. The outcome is a dead student, so that doesn't matter. Or you're driving down the road safely and carefully and some child darts in front of you. Or there are real horrible stories like this. I mean, I knew one in the Middle East where a guy was had that one. There's no bad intention, but according to Thompson, intention is irrelevant to permissibility, which leaves only one thing, which is the outcome. There's the outcome. And so she's going to say, well, the doctor's fully excused, the driver's fully excused. The professor is fully excused, but she also is compelled by her framework to say it, it was impermissible to drive to work the day that you hit the kid. It was impermissible to do the surgery when it led to the bad outcome. It was impermissible to give the failing grade even after all the precautions you took to that student when it led to the student's suicide. That's not a morality for human beings. We can't make it work. So do you know about Frank Jackson's thought experiment about Dr. Jill and the three pills. I don't think I do. This is totally grist for your mill. You need to look this one up for your book. So I don't remember the paper that it's in, unfortunately. 
But it's a pretty famous example. And the example is this. There's a doctor, Jill, because we have to subvert gender stereotypes at every turn, including philosophy <laughs> thought experiments. She's right. got this patient and the patient has this illness and there are three pills available, A, B, and C. She knows that either A or B will cure him entirely and the other will kill him. But she doesn't know which is which. It has no way of finding out. Pill C will cure him, but it will have some minor side effects. And she knows this. So what should she do? <laughs> okay, what's Frank said? I don't know what Jackson says, but I know what I say. Obviously, she should give the third pill, the one that yeah. she knows will cure him with some minor side effects. If she, yeah, it's suppose totally she ended up giving him pill A, and that turned out to be the one that cured him outright. It seems to me that if the patient realized this after the fact, even though he was completely cured, he would have reason to reproach Jill and say, look at the gamble you took with my life. How could you have done this? You had a 50% chance of killing me when you could have definitely cured me with some minor side effects. You did the wrong thing. What you did was morally wrong. Despite the fact that, yes, I'm glad I was cured and was not subject to these minor side effects. And so if you accept that, then the whole divorcing of the moral evaluation of the act and the moral evaluation of the agent and the agent's intentions isn't tenable. I would agree with you fully. I think your analysis is correct. And I mean, you cannot say that the doctor is practicing good medicine if they give A or B. I would say, you know, whereas the doctor in my example is practicing good medicine, it's like, you've got a serious condition, you've got three months to live, maybe if nothing is done and the surgery usually works, you can explain that to the patient and it's good medical practice to take a slight risk in a situation where the patient's already in deep trouble, but to just gamble with somebody's life with this Russian roulette thing. In fact, my chapter five is called Russian roulette morality <laughs> because I say that according to this moral theory, whether something is permissible or impermissible depends entirely on the outcome. So you can't know beforehand. And so if Thompson wanted to be consistent, may she rest in peace. She just died end of 2020 or something. But if she was to be consistent and some doctor says, hey, you're a teacher of ethics. I've got a surgery coming up. Is it permissible to do the surgery as a 3% chance of killing the patient? And I told the patient and she would have to say, I don't know. It depends. You'll have to do it and find out. If the patient lives, it was permissible. If not, it wasn't. And, and to me, that's not doing ethics. Well, I think she would appeal to expected utility or something. But the, the cost would be that the moral rightness or wrongness of an action just sort of seems to fall out. It doesn't seem to be doing much work if it doesn't guide your recommendation of what the agent should do. Yeah, I think the problem for her is she sets up these very firm principles in the book, uh, The Realm of Rights, which came out right before the article Self-Defense. Self-Defense had Alfred. The Realm of Rights had a similar case. And she announces these very firm principles, like, I am about the objective 
sense of the word ought, not the subjective. There's no place for a subjective sense of ought. And that, that's just a, well, it, ki- it kind of kills morality because it works in a very contrived example, whichever way you want to make it work. But when we do things in the real world, accidents happen despite our best intentions. And if you're going to say, oh, that was impermissible, this is a very strong connotation of morally wrong, right? Impermissible is kind of like the the modern way to say morally wrong. And I think her principles that she announces drive her in that direction. So the other thing I would say is that example is predicated on the problem of knowledge. And Aristotle way back says there can be ways that you're not at fault and you lack important knowledge, and you could do something that would be justified based on what you think. You took some precautions, but it just didn't work out. And then Aquinas kind of elaborates on this. So knowledge is a part of the intention in a way. And Anscombe repeats this in the book Intention. Unless you're culpable, and there are ways to be culpably ignorant, right? You can refuse to look. You can refuse to investigate whether something is illegal or whether something breaks a tax code because you don't want to know the answer. But If you do your due diligence, you take reasonable precautions in the circumstances. Okay. All right. So that was knowledge. But another core part of intention is an act of the will or just a choice. Maybe it's a choice to do nothing in a sort of omission. You know, you're watching a kid drown in a bathtub and you choose to do nothing. One point I wanted to make about what you were saying about losing morality is that it seems like we all recognize that there are certain things that are not subject to moral evaluation. Right. Like a hurricane doing immense destruction isn't doing anything morally wrong. And we wouldn't say it's wrong, but it's fully excused in virtue of not having any agency. We wouldn't say <laughs> yeah, that. That's right. But exactly. It's, think of the case of somebody who's having a seizure and flailing about and hits somebody. It seems like somebody like Jeff McMahon or Judith Jarvis Thompson would say what that person does is wrong, but fully excused. And I want to say, no, it was never subject to moral evaluation in the first place because it was not an intentional act. Yeah. I mean, this was just common sense for several millennia. It's a strange thing. So Thompson in the same article, the completely innocent threat is the fat man who's pushed off a cliff and you're sunbathing underneath the cliff, but there's an awning over you and you have time to switch the awning and you only have time for that. But if you don't, you will be crushed to death by the fat man. See, the humor was cruder in 19... 91 and fat men falling were subjects of humor. It could have been a skinny person from 30 feet higher on a cliff. They would have crushed you just as well. But anyway, she, you twitch the awning and the person is diverted away from you. And then they fall further onto the road and splat and they die. So she says, so, (laughs) well, it's a very complex thing because there's a lot of things that Thompson sort of doesn't say, but strongly implies. What she says is the reason you may adjust the awning to deflect the fat man is that he will otherwise violate your rights. Now, it is 
impermissible to violate someone's rights. And she's using a Hofeldian rights framework with rights are always corresponding to duties or there's liberties and claim rights and that whole system for the people who know it. But a right is never this empty thing. If I have a right that you not kill me, I have a claim against you that you not kill me. So you, the person on the bottom under the fat man, have a claim right against the fat man that he not continue falling on you. Okay, so she has imputed to him an impossible duty. And dude, you have to follow the reasoning carefully to get there. But she's clear about the claim rights. She mentions them in another context. So maybe it's carelessness or maybe not. But other people in this sort of stream of thinking have leaped to her defense. And they've said, well, the fact that it's impossible doesn't really mean it's not a, a duty. There can be impossible duties. <laughs> And then they justify the impossible duties. And this is a stream with uh, this guy named Victor Tadros. There's Francis Cam. There's Helen Fro. They all jump into this and they use the idea that you are a person or you are an agent. And therefore, you are subject to these duties by virtue of your agency. And a guy named Ben Baji published in a Canadian journal, and he says, if I'm carried unconscious into your room, that's wrong because I have a duty not to be in a place where I'm not given permission to be. And I say, the problem is you have a duty not to go voluntarily into such a place, but you don't have a duty not to be carried. It's like saying a, a soldier has a duty not to be killed or something. It's absurd. You have a duty to obey your officer and not disobey orders, but you don't have a duty not to be killed. It's, it's not possible to have that duty. But there's a big problem. You mentioned fully excused, and I, and I like that. And it gnawed at me for the longest time, like fully excused. And in the book, I talk about George Orwell's uh, 1984 and Winston, I think, is a protagonist and his girlfriend is Julia and he really loves her, but they got him under torture and they've discovered his childhood fear of rats and they've got him with his face locked into this cage and they're bringing the rats on to chew on his face, right? And this is what overcomes all of his moral scruples and he spills the beans, he betrays Julie, he betrays the cause, he betrays all of his friends. Now, I would call Winston probably fully excused. He's human. That's a grotesque attack on him. His fear overcame his imperfect love and devotion to the cause and so forth. An extraordinarily heroic person could have done that. But I would say, for an ordinary person, we would say fully excused. But now, somebody ties you up hand and foot and throws you on another person. To call that fully excused is a different category. Okay. Or to say, well, she needed to jump in one leap to the top of the mountain to save the child, but she's fully excused. That's just silly. It's like a different thing, right? So there's up to 100%, I would say, excused. And when you hit that 100%, you're at the maximum. Like there's agonizing, horrible difficulty, but it's not impossible or we wouldn't talk about excused, right? There, there could be a really, really heroic person who could do it. But then you go beyond that and you make something utterly and completely impossible and you use the same phrase, fully excused. I think that's a real category mistake. It, it's makeup applied over the imperfect concept 
of an impossible duty. <laughs> you know, it, that's what I would say. Yeah, I really agree with the distinction that you're making here. I think in the 1984 case, it's still within the limits of human agency to resist under the circumstances in which Winston finds himself in room 101, but barely, barely. And it's either fully excused or actually, I, I almost want to say nothing is completely fully excused. As long as something's in action, there's some moral gradient to it. Maybe you would talk about a case where you couldn't possibly know the consequences of your action as being a fully excused case. I'm not even sure what you'd think of that. Actually, let me ask about that kind of case. So suppose I call you on this phone and I don't realize that terrorists have <laughs> hooked up this phone to a bomb and it, it, so it detonates and kills 100 people. Would you say that's a fully excused action or would you say that is outside of the realm of morality in the same way that me being incapacitated and drug into your room would not be an act of trespassing or something? You see, it's interesting you bring this up because this was one of McMahon's cases. And McMahon has this series of the conscientious driver and the ambulance driver, pilot. There's a number of people who I think the average person on the street would say, look, there's no way. I'm getting at your question, but kind of in an in indirect way. When he addresses the issue of the conscientious driver, in the book, he says there's a freak event that will take place and cause the car to veer out of control. I think the way to go is to say, I'm not going to blame people for things that go wrong in the ordinary course of life where they're taking reasonable care. I'm just not going to blame them. They're not blameworthy. It's like a freak event doesn't lead to moral responsibility because of a risk. There's risk everywhere. There's risk all over the place. If he really thinks that taking on certain kinds of risks is morally unacceptable, then, I mean, he's going to go down a rabbit hole. Well, he would say that he agrees with you about the blameworthiness stuff, but then say that doesn't have anything to do with the evaluation of acts because he would insist on this act-agent evaluation distinction. The point I wish I would have raised, though, was the act that would be getting the moral evaluation seems to drop out of the picture if you press this far enough, because the act that he'd be saying would be impermissible but fully excused is the act of killing someone with your car. But in order to even say that this person was driving at all, You'd need to know something about the mental states and something about the intention. That couldn't be completely abstracted away. Otherwise, it would be like the person who's having a seizure or maybe even a natural event. Yeah, I mean, Thomas Kavanaugh, who's one of my mentors, in his book on double effect reasoning, he just throws out a few very short hints about the importance of intention overall, because mostly he's dealing with double effect reasoning and Intention makes a difference between these two acts. But he traces that distinction to Donegan. He talks about the first order and the second order. And the first order is the act, and the second order is the, the agent. You morally evaluate one, and you can do it separately, and they're separable. And Kavanaugh just says kind of cryptically that the act that's morally evaluatable in a coherent way is constituted by the agent's epistemic and volitional states. 
And these guys want to deny that. But I mean, McMahon doesn't kind of create a way with this risk business. But it's like driving recklessly is immoral. If you drive recklessly, but you're in a car with a cage around you like a stock car and you're on the Bonville salt flats and nobody else can get hurt, that's one thing. But if you don't know and you're driving recklessly, I claim that that's a defective intention because you intend to get from A to B, which may be perfectly good. You're going to the cinema, you're going to buy groceries, you're going to work. All those are perfectly acceptable reasons to drive. But when you do something that has some inherent danger built into it, you owe it to those who may be around you to do that with a great deal of care. So if you're working heavy machinery, if you're using a chainsaw, if you're hunting in the woods with a gun, if you're driving a car, I always told my kids when I was teaching them how to drive, like you're driving a killing piece of machinery, right? This is, this is not a joke. You owe the people in the world around you special care when you drive a car. So your intention needs to include that care while you're driving from A to B. If you drive recklessly, your intention is defective. But if your intention is to drive carefully and you're watching and you have a well-maintained car and you have done all that morality can fairly ask you to do, that's a phrase from a legal scholar who's critiquing McMahon, actually, Furzant. I forget her first name. But Furzant says, if you've done all that morality can fairly ask you to do, then you've done it and your act is permissible. It's permissible to drive. The, The freak event is what causes the death of the person, not your conscientious driving in in moral terms. If you want to take agency out of the question, then you don't have morality anyway. So you do, that's, I think, your point. You do need agency to get something that can be judged. That's why we don't talk about the volcano shot a rock in Hawaii and it landed on somebody's leg like three miles away and broke his leg. Probably was very bad. But I mean, it's a legitimate point of your story about boulders falling and we don't judge them. We, we don't say they're fully excused. There's nothing moral about it. And at times there's nothing moral about an event that arises out of what we do because it's not connected to our agency and our agency. It's like agency goes down to nothing while we're sound asleep, when we're knocked out for surgery, when we're tied hand and foot, when we're whacked in the head, when we're injected with hallucinogenic drugs against our will. Your agency goes down to zero, at least temporarily. You're still an agent sort of by politeness, you know, it's like, oh yeah, he's an agent, but your capacity of agency is what the label really is about. And so they, to set up a scenario in which all the capacities are inaccessible to you and then say, oh, but you're an agent seems to me like it's not a coherent approach. Aristotle said that morality is the domain of praise and blame or something like that. Yeah. And if you stick with that, then you would see that these scenarios that abstract away anything about an agent that you, you could attach blameworthiness or praiseworthiness to it would seem to be outside of the domain of ethics just altogether. Yeah, and I I should say something about that because I think there's an artificial distinction these guys have adopted that doesn't help, and I think it leads to confusion. And that's, they say, well, they talk about acts being permissible or impermissible on the subjective basis, and then they say agents are 
praiseworthy or blameworthy? Well, I would say acts are praiseworthy and blameworthy too, but they are praiseworthy and blameworthy precisely because the agent can be praised for doing them or blamed for doing them. So in a human act, in a voluntary act, in Aquinas or Aristotle sense, the, the moral quality of the act is from the agent and it's in the act because it's in the agent simultaneously, right? It, it's just, it's in both places. If you want to abstract the act away from the agent, it's like saying Socrates is a man and you abstract all the qualities that make him Socrates. You, you've taken away precisely the moral qualities, I think, that make an act moral. The, those qualities come from the agent. And if you look at these, you would say, well, what's your reaction to the freak event in the car veering? You would say it's a tragedy. You wouldn't say, boy, you shouldn't have driven to work today. You shouldn't have driven to the movies. You might feel a sort of, oh, I wish I hadn't gotten the car that day. When you make a moral judgment, you do not make a moral judgment. You should not have got in the car that day. That's absurd. It's just not connected with morality. Kant says odd implies can, and he's quoting an ancient Latin proverb, and Aquinas quotes it several times. Morality is about the possible, and it's about praiseworthy and blameworthy acts. Often, I think this kind of argument is briefly made in the context of double effect reasoning, which can get very convoluted and complicated and very tricky, and you could push a situation to the extreme, like a lot of thought experiments. But if you start with the idea that the moral quality of every action, if it has a moral quality, comes from the agent, then that that is kind of a good guide as you go through the difficult problems. Maybe now would be a good time to talk about your reaction to philosophers' thought experiments, especially the more <laughs> recent kind. And uh, yeah. I get, I gave you as quasi homework for this, the um, <laughs> Alan Woods essay about this in right, right. It's on what matters part two on what matters. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to hear your reactions to that. No, I, I mean, I loved it. I'm sure I wouldn't have uh, agreed with every detail. There's a refrain about these thought experiments that keeps coming back. And he says, in real life, in real life, in the real world. And so when I was exposed to this kind of thing, it was discouraging for me. Or for me, it cast doubt on the thing as an academic subject, on ethics as an academic subject as currently practiced. If this is what it's about, then there's something wrong with what's going on. And then there's something, okay, here's what I would say. The quintessential reason for doing a thought experiment in ethics is to learn something about this world, the real world, the world we live in. I was constantly urged in grad school classes, grant the person her premises, grant the premises and then work with it. Of course, your problem often, as Wood would point out, your problem is the premises that you are boxed into this weird thing that you feel has nothing to do with real life. And then you're like, well, I don't want to grant these premises because I would be insane. I would be like, I, I feel like he says something about the certainty that's involved. And yeah, actually, actually, I, before we go on, let's talk about what specifically it is 
we're talking about. We're talking about like trolley problem thought experiments where right. you, you pull the lever, you either let the trolley, let the train go straight ahead and kill five, or you pull the lever and have it kill one. That one's actually fairly imaginable. But then they get more and more elaborate, like, okay, what if you could push a, a fat man off a bridge and that could stop the train? Or, you know, some of these just get really, really elaborate. And what philosophers will say is, okay, we're stipulating that you know what the consequences are going to be here as a way of isolating some confounding variables right? and getting clear on what our principles tell us. And so this kind of thought experiment is supposed to be useful for that, not for any real-life guidance. And so there are certain people that... <laughs> reaction there's certain people who have this right. reaction of why can't you take the trolley off the tracks why can't you prosecute the person who's responsible for the train's brakes going out in the first place or and then philosophers analytic philosophers will tear their hair out and say no you're not playing the game and then alan wood will say that's right i'm not playing the game it's a stupid game and, and you're sympathetic with that kind of approach i i'm extremely sympathetic and i i feel like well he calls them trolley problems but he means something broader than trolley problems i i call them objective scenarios in one sense it's like when you are told what will take place i feel like well one of the arguments i make in the book is that the concept of objectivity requires observation and the possibility of observation so the freak event that will take place is not even theoretically objective because it hasn't happened yet and it might not happen. And so it can't be objective. And I also feel like what he says is like when you inject a certainty, you destroy the moral application because that is just what you never have in the real world. So you created an artificial situation that, that doesn't apply. I wrote down a quote from him that I thought, I really like summed it up. He says trolley problems, meaning this broader category of unworldly things seem to me to abstract, not from what is irrelevant, but from what is morally vital about all the situations that most resemble them in real life. And that, that just sums it up. You know, I have to tell a story, but it's a funny connection that you were at my dissertation defense. And then we, we went out with a couple of friends afterwards and we had a big argument very good, good natured for the most part. And then I went home and I went, I think I went to bed and then I got up and said, no, no, I had the sudden desire to write a parable. And I wrote a parable about travels to objectiva, this land where things are all objective and they're known. And I, and I feel like here's what happens when, when McMahon tells you that a freak event will take place, he's flying in a, a kind of a noumenal helicopter over the the human world because all of us are stuck with phenomena we, we don't have access if kant is right that there's a noumena that we can't touch or given the kind of scenario like it's a little universe where mcmahon the creator of the universe knows what will happen but you don't well okay that's not where i live i live in a universe where i seem to i know the lights on i don't know what will happen a five seconds from now and i have to act in this world where the future's uncertain all the time so given that the world of the trolley problem in many cases 
is different from this world, the least you'd have to do is like translate and admit, okay, we're talking about a world where there's objective facts that somebody knows. When you think about Alfred, who's got the, who's got the cure. Okay. It can't be a sting operation by the police because otherwise when he gave the stuff, then he would be arrested for attempted murder by the police who are watching him. So it can't be a sting operation. So therefore it's an accident. But there's a really weird thing about it, which is nobody will ever know that it happened because they can't. The poison dealer doesn't know that he accidentally had this pill. Alfred doesn't know it. She doesn't die. So the next morning he goes back to the poison dealer and he goes, damn it, man. I thought I paid you for good poison. The prospective victim is still alive. You better give me a replacement pill free of charge and this one better work. So she would die and nobody would ever even even know. But but what I but what I said in that first article was another thing is like this perspective, this godlike perspective. When Thompson says, Of course it's permissible, that is not advice aimed at Alfred. But Alfred's the agent who is acting, right? So she's not talking to Alfred. She's like hovering in the air on a cloud or in an invisible spaceship with some grad students, and she's saying, Hey, look, it's permissible because we know that stuff is actually medicine. So what does that have to do with ethics? It's like ethics is what can be told to a person who needs to act. <laughs> that, that's what. <laughs> so perspective, often the perspective in these thought experiments has just wandered so far away from the world that we're in another world. And I think my little parable kind of got at that problem. And I just find that Woods is saying the same thing. It's like, this is not like the real world. And these guys have no shame. Fro gives, and I, I don't mean to, you know, attack her personally, but she will have something like you're falling down the well, this Nozick's version of the fat man, you're falling down the well, but if you could twist your body so that you would lose a foot, well, nobody knows they're going to be able to lose a foot and twist their body while they're falling down a well. She says, if you need to rescue somebody from a raging river, but you know that if you do it, you will lose a leg. Look, if you lose a leg, you will die. You will drown in the raging river. They posit these utterly implausible objective facts about the, the consequences. And this just takes it out of the realm of morality for humans. I, I want morality for humans. I want ethics for humans. I think the more stipulations you add to a thought experiment, the less value your intuition has because yes. you, you don't know whether you're really keeping up with that stipulation or not. Yeah. So I think though, to push back a little bit. And, and uh, let me add one oh, more thing though. Okay. When you, you take an original and these things, they're like literature folk tales or something. The next person takes it and puts a little twist on it. Or you say, what about the third person defense possibility? So the falling fat man, Thompson late in the article goes, well, what if you wanted to defend the person underneath because, and you could kill the falling fat man? What are you going to kill him with? He's falling. He's a heavy object falling. You're going to kill him with a high-powered rifle. He will keep falling. The bullet will go bazooka. through him. <laughs> yeah, everybody has a bazooka and all these stories. It's like, okay, here's a, a kind of a double effect story. You're in a war and let's stipulate that it's, you're, you're on the just side. And you're with a group of soldiers in a Humvee and you're ambushed and you're trying to hightail it out of there. 
And the last place you have to get through is a fairly narrow street. It's a narrow alleyway in the Middle East. And an old man stumbles out in front of you as you're zooming down that road. But you got six guys in your Humvee. Now, there's a kind of scenario where I say, okay, look, that's a thought experiment that's worth thinking about if that's the question you're examining. But some of these others are... And and then the the whole falling down the well thing became more and more twisted and a new twist and a new twist. And I think every time you add a twist to a ridiculous thought experiment, <laughs> you add to the implausibility and kind of absurdity. And I think this casts doubt on ethics as a field. I think a lot of people wander into take one ethics class and they're urged to take this kind of thing seriously. And they're saying, you're making me go away from the reality of my ethical feelings and ethical thoughts to live in this other academic world. And so they don't want to do it and they don't think it has anything to offer them. So I think this is what you might be suspicious of. So the example that you just gave about the the, the convoy and the person stepping out in front of it, you gave a similar example to that that was from medieval ethics involving yeah, the guy escaping of right. course that was that was in your dissertation right. but that's so right. thought experiments have always been a part of moral philosophy but they never played such a central role and they were never stipulative in the way that the contemporary ones are and this is what i think has gone wrong this is my diagnosis is i think that this came from a desire to make ethics scientific. And yes, so this has the conceit of being analogous to a physical experiment, a physicist's experiment, right? when every single variable is isolated. Whereas really, you can over-control the variables here. And we just have to accept, that, as Aristotle said, that there has to be the kind of certainty that the area of inquiry admits of. And you don't get that kind of precision in ethics that you get for mathematics or chemistry or physics. Right. And so you got to think about it more in the, the lines of humanities. Like the, the purpose of the thought experiment is to get us reflecting on it and relating to it that way. And like we're looking at a, a, a giant particle collider, but the particles being collided <laughs> are intuitions or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. And that is something that I actually mentioned early on. I say, I think it's a desire to be scientific because objective feels more scientific. And the more objective you get, the closer you are to science. This is, Nagel, Nagel talks about this in The View from Nowhere, that this, there's this scientific approach of draining out all the subjectivity and making everything a blip on an instrument. And then, wow, now we really isolate stuff. But Aristotle's point is, look, human actions have this. It's like political actions, which are also human actions. You just said no situation is exactly alike. And it's totally true. There's that there's a funny misconception. I have people say to me, like, that's a bad analogy because those two situations are different. And I was like, well, yeah, every analogy is about different situations. That's why it's an analogy. But yeah, nothing is exactly like nothing is precise. And 
the point of physics is not to prescribe action to a molecule. It's to describe what will happen in a supremely accurate fashion in a, in a certain situation. But that's not the point of ethics. And so it, it's, it's applying, it's putting the methods of mathematics or physics in, into ethics. And, it, and I agree, it doesn't work. It simply doesn't work. Yeah. I, I think there's another aspect to this, which is, I think it goes back to Descartes. Said so the ancient, the ancient view is know thyself is tough. It's difficult because we're somewhat self-deceptive. Or a Buddhist might say you don't pay attention to what's going on inside your own mind a lot of the times. And there, there's a whole lot of reasons. The ancient view was you don't have a clear look inside your head. And uh, there's a French existentialist called Gabriel Marcel, and he said, a mystery is a problem that encroaches on its own data. When I start thinking about myself and my own existence and evil in myself, well, where do I sit to look inside my mind to study those things? Well, I am my mind, so there's, I'm encroaching on my own data. Descartes thought he could look in his mind and see these clear and distinct ideas, and I think he was wrong. I don't think you can do that. The holdover from that sense that we can look in our mind and see an intuition. It's like, I don't think we have that kind of clarity. I, I also think intuitions are heavily theory influenced. It's like, why do I, I've thought about ethics in a very informal way for decades before I got into a PhD program, but all my thoughts are influenced by teachers, by books, by preachers, by who knows what. And so my intuition isn't this raw data of, you know, contact with the substratum of you know, morality. It's more like, I think there's contact. I agree that intuitions have some value, but there's none of this clarity of, you know, touching moral bedrock and feeling it, except in very extreme cases. Like, do you have an intuition that it'd be wrong to you know, shoot up your high school and kill as many people as possible. Yes, that, I'm horrified by that. Okay, that's a that's a really solid intuition. <laughs> I mean, <that's, laughs> I mean, I think even a Viking might have said, "What for? No point. You're not going to steal anything. W what would you do that for? Like, at least if you got some loot out of it, maybe." But like, yeah, I mean, the problem with Descartes' epistemology is that he wanted to build on a foundation of diamond. Yes. It had to be just that certain. And so if right. you build on a foundation of diamond, your house is like this big. It's like a one square foot. It's got the firmest foundation, but like you got to live in a house that's more than one square foot. And yep. so that means you have to have a house that's more vulnerable to earthquakes. That's just yep. what we have to have. And so I think a tolerance for a certain amount of uncertainty is inescapable here and it's also yeah. the case it's also the case to go back to what you were saying earlier that ethics is subjective not in the sense of anything goes man but in the sense in which it pertains to subjects so if you're trying to evaluate it from a perspective where we've abstracted away from the subjects abstracted away from the agents then you you are by definition putting yourself in a place where you can't evaluate ethical claims, it seems to me. 
Yeah, no, I use Nagel's idea in the beginning because I had some thoughts on objectivity that I was fairly happy with, but then I finished reading Nagel and I thought he has this nice sense of the bleached out scientific point of view where everything's been drained out, this human and subjective. And then he goes, yeah, but who's got the theory? Some human being who's a scientist. And if he wants to talk about the cosmos, He's part of the cosmos and he's got all these subjective perceptions and they're part of the cosmos. So I think what happens is a kind of confusion over the idea of objectivity, because there is such a thing as narrow physical objectivity to strive for. But the problem is when you describe an act in really abstract terms and you describe the muscles that move and stuff, you you haven't gotten anywhere on the moral side. But another sense of objectivity would be the way things truly are. But that includes the subjective perceptions and the subjective choices and the intentions and the knowledge of the subject. So, yeah, I think that is a key part of of what goes wrong. It's kind of like a a misguided uh, attempt uh, and a misunderstanding of how objectivity might apply to a human act. I could add something about these things, but I try to do it in the book in an organized way, but I think some of these things are inconsistent. So there are things like an impossible duty not to fall. But I think then the principles are not applied consistently throughout the scenario. So if the man is falling on me, he has an impossible duty not to fall. But if impossible duties are okay, then I would say it's like a typical self-defense idea that You have a duty to retreat before you kill somebody if you can. That's kind of dogma these days in most places, it seems. So I can say, well, you lying at the bottom of the cliff have a duty to retreat. Well, it's impossible because of the scenarios. Oh, well, too bad. You know, he is justified in killing you because you didn't retreat. You didn't do your impossible duty. Another way it works is with labels. And so Fro has this stylized bridge example. There's murderer chasing victim and victims trying to run across the bridge. And then there's bystander who she calls threat standing on the bridge, obstructing. It's like the guy on the horseback trying to get through the alley. But if I take away the labels and look at it from the person on the bridge's point of view, She doesn't even see murderer. She sees victim, but he doesn't have a big V on his forehead. So she doesn't know he's a victim. She sees a guy aggressively charging at her. And since Fro says he's justified in throwing her off the bridge because she's obstructing his escape, then he's acting like a guy who's going to throw her off the bridge. So the person on the bridge has the right, from his point of view, to defend himself against the supposed Victim. So like some of these scenarios, they work because of labels or they work because of inconsistent application of principles. And to me, that's a real problem. The, the same principles ought to work across the board in the scenario. You know, you haven't said the name of your book yet. We want to get oh. that on the record before <laughs> I forget about it. Thank you very much. I, I thought that way back and then I forgot. Yeah, the original working title was kind of cute. It was Human and Inhuman Acts, kind of playing off of Aquinas' idea of a human act. But uh, that's not very specific. And so the editor suggested acts, intentions, and moral evaluation. Or there was some back and forth, and that's what we came up with. The kind of working title is Acts, Intentions, and Moral Evaluation. Because the idea is that 
it's about acts. It's about intentions. It's about what kind of acts can be morally inv- evaluated and why and how. I might have a subtitle. I had a title about towards the remarriage of deed and doer or something because I want them together instead of split. But I think I'll leave that out of the uh, subtitle. I, I like the title as it is. And the publisher is who again? Is Rutledge. Okay. Francis. And, yeah. I, I'm really pleased. I mean, it's, it's great. I wanted to say, because you brought up the 1984 Room 101 thing. They have a kind of amusing story about that. Like my wife despises mice and rats on a level I didn't know it was possible for a human being to despise any kind of creature. Just loathes them like to the point where she doesn't even want to read the word on a page. (laughs) Okay. So it was so funny. Right when COVID was breaking out in Wuhan back in January of 2020, she was reading, guess what book? The Plague. Oh, great. <laughs> and she was, she was telling me, she was telling me how hard it was for her to get through the book because there were rats in it and descriptions of rats. And then I said, okay, so what are you reading now? And she said, 1984. And I had to look up <laughs> my face. <laughs> That's I had to look up my face. And she's like, what? Why are you looking at it like, like that? Are there rats in it? And I said, I'm not saying anything. And so after I was evacuated, she said that she got all the way up to the Room 101 chapter. And she's like, I can't finish it because I think there's a rat in Room 101. It's like, oh, there is. Uh, She smelled a rat. Yeah. And so I ended up reading her that chapter over WeChat video chat and she like had the blanket up to her eyes and was like <laughs> well rambling, but I, I i mean yeah no i mean i find that horrifying i definitely find that horrifying yeah there's something about rats different people have different things but yeah for sure i agree that i think i think he picked a good one when he wrote that when he wrote that chapter i think cockroaches would be in my room 101 or maybe, I don't know, books by some philosopher I can't stand. <laughs> but I think we've covered a lot of territory here. Do you have any final words on any of these topics? I could summarize. I think ethics is about thinking about how humans ought to act. And humans can only act in a world where their knowledge is imperfect. And where sometimes they're prevented from acting and sometimes they're pushed or tripped or thrown around and their bodies do things that they're not responsible for. And so it just puts ethics back on a human level if we accept that and restrict our evaluation to the acts that come from our humanity. It restores the connection between the act and the agent. The agency can be seen in the act that matters. And it guards the concept of a tragedy or, or a lucky break, both of which are concepts we need to get through the world. So that's what I would say. So Alba wasn't too vociferous or harsh on anybody. I mean, I know these guys are smart people. I just think they're barking up the wrong tree and when they go in this direct, smart as they are. 
And that's the problem with philosophy. You got to disagree with brilliant people, right? <laughs> you got to say Kant is wrong. Descartes is wrong. You know, otherwise, <laughs> you know, you kind of have to, if you fall on one side or the other, you're going to disagree with some brilliant person. Yeah, but you always got brilliant people on your side too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. True, true, true. All right. All right. Well, Craig, we've been meaning to have this conversation on the record for a long time now. We've had conversations about this stuff like over the last several years. And I thought, oh, we got to have one of these for the podcast. I'm glad we've finally been able to do it. And I'm glad to hear that you finally got a publisher for your book and that's forthcoming and had a good time talking with you today. Yeah, thanks. I, I totally agree that it's good to get it on the record. It was good to approach it in kind of a systematic way, fairly systematic way. And it was a lot of fun. So I really appreciate being invited on with you and definitely wish you the best with the podcast and your own writing and publishing. Look forward to getting your latest book. All right. Well, till next time. All right. Take care.